0: Thinking about. Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> you could do your one. I didn't. Even, I forgot to commend you on your uh, K-pop thing last time.
1: Oh, was, I wasn't sure if that was insane that was funny, or not. Yeah,
0: but you could do another one with me. Just going, ugh.
1: Maybe I should turn that into my ringtone for whenever you call me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is there a way that you can force other people to have a ringtone when you call them? Because that could be your, <laughs> your ringtone for every person you call. <laughs>
1: to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hi everyone, welcome to Save Me From My Shelf. I am Abby Boucher, and sitting across from me is Dr. Jenkins Smith, newly minted, fresh out of graduation.
0: That's true. That is true.
1: Do we have any corrections from last time? I have a few points, but do we have any corrections?
0: I was thinking we we're pretty much bang on the money.
1: Didn't you do a whole measuringworth.com thing? Yes,
0: I did to see what £50 was worth. It's really good measuring worth. I would really. <laughs> Strenuously urge anybody who's interested in w- working out how much something was mm. worth in a novel or what have you to mm-hmm. go on measuring worth.
1: Yeah, you're you're talking about it as though they're paying you to love it. So shame they're not. I didn't know if you wanted to get into all of that to talk about the what 50 quid.
0: Yeah, go on. Thing. Yeah, uh, is it your thing. Oh well, I don't remember what it said.
1: But regardless, I think we can both agree in a sort of uneasy alliance against Pamela that she is not worth 50 quid a year. Mr. B is getting a raw deal. She is so dull. Well, I'm sorry anyway for being so angry in the last episode. I just like to rage, bruh. (laughs) Speaking of me liking to rage, I am furious about this. So we've started every week releasing some sort of poll about something that Daniel and I have fought on on this podcast. We put it up on Twitter. And this past week, I put up one about... What Pamela should have done to escape Because she kind of doesn't do either, does she? Whether she should fake Stockholm Syndrome And weasel her way out of there So they start trusting her You thought that she should
0: Not go gentle
1: And the people have spoken And it's exactly 50-50 split either way Good I am so yeah. di- No, no, this is not good Why? Talk me through your thought process You are a 16-year-old no, no, I've girl. changed my
0: mind now I've changed my mind Because I'm just thinking like more broadly Like, say I was going to be hanged from the neck until dead. I would be so nice to all the guards and the hangman and everything, and you know, I'd like, I'd help him put my head through the noose. And then he'd pull the trapdoor and I would die. Oh, no, it wouldn't work, would it? Because you've got to constantly resist. You've got to exhaust everybody involved. You've got to make them pay for their captivity that they forced you into. The
1: difference is there is one sort of central moment there that you will probably not be able to escape either way, but okay, fine, fight, and maybe you can run.
0: It's but not even about running, it's about pissing everyone off.
1: If it's futile, but here you have a chance to escape if you just let them relax their guard. If you were a 16... I would just like
0: burn the house down if I would have well, a... Fire, yeah. There's a fire in every room, just immediately. The moment you get in, the moment you get put in your, your bedroom, just start a fire. That's what I would do.
1: Okay, fine, as a, as some sort of distraction, no,
0: but also... just to destroy everything.
1: <laughs> but what if you're locked in... In the house, you're gonna die then anyway. Don't you, sure. have n- don't no. care. you have no. You have no. You don't care. Oh, really? Well, I have a waiver here for you to sign in a fun experiment for us to do <laughs> together. <laughs> oh, you're driving me insane. No, you, you let them relax, our guard, and then you slip out like a thief in the night. Oh,
0: that's very naive.
1: You, since you have graduated, have become
0: so it's insufferable. Not <laughs> that's not very fair. I was always like this.
1: So we got our first letter through the website, which is very exciting, Um, and we got something from somebody named Sydney, who says, hello, hello, I was wondering, do you two take suggestions for works to cover? No. Sydney, we do indeed. I don't. (laughs) Well, thankfully Daniel doesn't choose shit in this podcast, he just turns up. And Sydney said, I'd personally love to see your take on Hamlet, especially considering your love for queer readings.
0: Never heard of it. What is that? Hamlet? Yeah, I thought it was a sort of daintier pork product
1: readings in Hamlet. Are you talking about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or between Laertes and Hamlet? But yeah, the point is, we do take suggestions. Maybe we'll be covering that next season. I don't know. Stay tuned. exciting. So, Daniel, what is our text today?
0: There are three things I associate with the place in which it was set. Doses, which is a sort of uh, pancake. Houseboats. And communists. And... The book has neither of the first two. I was very disappointed. I kind of came in hoping it had loads of doses, but no one. Loads of communists, though, so that's good, at the very least. Yeah, it's hot, isn't it? It's very hot. We're in the deep south of India. <laughs> We're in Kerala. We're doing The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy.
1: Have you read it before?
0: No, this was my first time.
1: You suggested this one. Yes, yeah, so
0: <laughs> that was because I wanted to read it.
1: Cheerful little tale that you've picked. It's funny. The trigger warnings are pretty bad.
0: Manifold.
1: Okay, so the trigger warnings are general violence, um, police brutality, there's some child molestation here, there's incest, there's casteism, and Daniel has very helpfully put under the trigger warnings, because he's a smartass, Non-linear narrative. But
0: some people do struggle with that, don't they?
1: Struggling is not the same as a trigger warning, (laughs) but point Uh, taken, because after a little while, I was like, no, I can't I can't do another another flashback. Don't send me
0: back again! (laughs) Arundhati Roy. She's from India. She has quite a similar background to the uh, twins, who are the main characters of the novel, so she's from a Carolyn Christian background, and a Bengali Hindu one as well. She got the Booker Prize for this, her debut novel, but then... uh, Spent the next 20 years being an activist, gave up novel writing until recently she wrote The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Yeah, the plot is very convoluted, or the, I should, maybe not the plot, but the sort of narrative is very convoluted, isn't it? As we've kind of already intimated.
1: I think what we're gonna have to do here, just to help keep it clear, or maybe even just highlight for you guys the the flash forwards and flashbacks, is maybe put in what a little ding or something every time we do maybe. that, just to, yeah. to go, oh, now we're in a different time period than we were.
0: It's good to keep account of them. I mean, we've actually got rid of some as well, haven't we, for the sake oh of, God, for, for the sake of streamlining the summation.
1: <laughs> we open in the present day, by which I mean the 1990s, in Kerala, India. And 30-something Rahel is coming home after a long, sad stint in America. Is there any other kind? <laughs> she hasn't seen her twin brother, Esther, in about 25 years. And so they they kind of fall into this cliche of we're twins, but we have this weird psychic bond. I kind of would have preferred the one twin is evil cliche, but... Those
0: are the two options, aren't the, they? Yeah, yeah those twins the only... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Psychic... But, Emotionally psychic or good or evil, yeah.
1: But this family that she belongs to has got some baggage. So first of all, back when they were children in the late 60s, their cousin Sophie died under some mysterious circumstances. And there's some sort of unspecified general family trauma that's maybe linked to Sophie's death, or maybe it's something else, we don't really know. And the twins were separated for 25 years, we don't know why. And over that time, the rest of the family has sort of moved on or died. The family is also a middle class, high caste, Syrian Christian family, and they run a pickle factory, which is a a detail that I really love in this story. Mm -hmm. I wish we kind of got more of that industry. Like, what do you think that's like? Do you think there's like a pickle convention every year that they go to? Uncle Chaco going to Pickle Con. (laughs) So let's do the cast of characters, right? So beyond the twins, Rahel and Esther, and beyond their cousin, Sophie... We have the twins' mother, Amu, who is beautiful, but she's kind of distracted and a little bit prickly, so exactly the type of mother I'm going to be one day. They have their dad, who isn't really in the picture. He divorced their mom when they were babies, and he lives far away now. There's their grandmother, Mamachi. And then there is my favorite character, their great-aunt, who is known as Aunt Baby So you got. This is why you've got to be really careful nicknaming people in your family because this is how you end up with a seventy-year-old named Aunt Baby. Mm. Do you have a weird nickname? Does your family call you something Uh, strange?
0: Fish face was quite a common. Really. Yeah.
1: Why? It's funny, I thought. My family calls me Babs. Right. I don't know why. That's short for Barbara. Yeah. Aunt Baby is a terrible person, but she does have a sad past with a hot priest, and we are going to get to more of that later on. That is a damn guarantee. Then, of course, there's the glamorous half-English cousin Sophie, who, as I said, dies in childhood, and her English mother Margaret, and then Uncle Chaco, who is Sophie's father, and he gives off the world's most sad divorced uncle who lives with us and doesn't really see his kids vibes. If he lived in America today, this guy would own a karate studio, he would be DJing high school dances in his spare time, he would be vaping too much. This is spiritually where vaping was invented.
0: They're if, both like that, don't they? Amu and Chako are both sort of slightly sad. Well, like, slightly abortive about them both and they both had to come back yes. and live with their mum.
1: So yes, yeah, so we're given this hint that there was some sort of huge family rift back in the day, and we we get a bit of a flashback to their cousin Sophie's funeral where the twins and their mother, Amu, were sort of forced to stand separately instead of standing with the rest of the family. So after the funeral, Amu takes the twins with her to the police station. <laughs> Interesting post-funeral choice. And she sort of mysteriously says, there's been some sort of mistake, something's happened. But instead of the police doing anything, Amu is instead insulted by the police inspector who calls her a veshia, which is, I believe, a derogatory word for a sex worker. And then after this, Estha, the boy twin, is sent away to live with his estranged father. This family's got twists and turns and repression and creepy twins and mysterious deaths. It has all the makings for a gothic masterpiece. I hope I'm not disappointed. I think this is going to be literary and very poignant. I just want garbage.
0: Most For most people, that would be uh, a compliment. Oh, um, right? yeah, no, 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 no. no. Yeah, you, is, uh, you know me, yeah. my,
1: my appetite for garbage is...
0: Unending. From the funeral in the 1960s, we're back to the present day, the 1990s, and we get a little bit of a background on the twins' adult lives. Esther lived with his dad in Calcutta for most of his life, and then eventually was sent back to Kerala, and is completely mute.
1: My dream for all men, let's be honest.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and has other sort of psychological problems. He's He's a kind of broken man, and he lives with Aunt Baby. Rahel stayed in Kerala as a child, and then went to university, but didn't ever take a degree. She did meet an American, though, and... Not uh, just an
1: American, a Bostonian. Yeah. Are you going to be brave? I
0: can't. I'm not going to... Okay. I'll save that till next week, the Massachusetts accent.
1: I'm going to hold you to that.
0: She married this American guy and went with him to America.
1: They have kind of this weird marriage. Yeah. So this guy she marries, Larry, they don't really understand each other that well and there's just this one bit that kind of raised some questions for me. So Larry talks about their sex life and he's like she looks at me really weird when we're having sex and seems kind of empty inside and I don't get it. What he couldn't understand is that the quote emptiness in one twin, by which they mean Rahel, was only a version of the quietness in the other, Esther that the two things fitted together, like stacked spoons, like familiar lovers' bodies. So, are you telling me that only Esther can fully understand his sister's O-face? Because I, 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 um, I, uh... uh...
0: Anyway, so after they got divorced, Rahel worked some kind of dead-end jobs in America, but then when she hears that Esther has been returned to Kerala, she goes back too for a kind of reunion. So they've not seen each other for like 23 years or something. Finally,
1: someone can understand my o face.
0: Exactly, yeah. We then get a little kind of mini biography of Aunt Baby. Uh, So I think I'm gonna turn over to my colleague here. You
1: can only hope to contain me. I would just talk right over you. I want to talk about this so bad. Great. So we go back to Aunt Baby's youth, and at 18, her dad, who is a priest, starts getting visited by this Catholic monk, who is very attractive, and Aunt Baby tries, to, every Thursday, she tries to seduce him by doing good works, and those good works mostly just involve giving baths to local children. Uh, the way to Unwi- a, Who
0: I'm unwilling yeah, to be bathed. Well, I
1: would say, yeah, the way to a man's heart is through cleansing ungrateful urchins, And he's clearly kinda into her, but obviously he's a monk, and the two of them get all hot and bothered, debating intellectual questions, getting all riled up over eschatology. But after a year of this, a year of (laughs) bathing small children, strangely, in like a public square, she's no closer to physically seducing him. So she decides to pour all of her love into religion instead, and she becomes a Catholic nun as a way to be sort of spiritually close to him.
0: I thought she did it because she thought she might be in the same... Well... S- that too. Well, Either what, or.
1: Abelard, Eloise, yeah. whatever. Okay, yeah. Regardless, girl, we've all done ridiculous things for a guy. In my undergrad, I pretended to like a journey song to impress a boy, which I think is probably as emotionally taxing as becoming a nun.
0: Yeah. Takes less time, though.
1: Not if you have to listen to it over and over again. Okay, is
0: it that one, the only one that I Don't you, stop Yeah. Blew. Oh, God. It's a terrible song, isn't
1: it? I mean, It's It's so good. I love it so much. You're right. It's genius. I think you guys should write in with the craziest thing you've ever done for a romantic interest. I will. I will read it aloud on the show. But anyway, Aunt Baby ultimately hates the convent. She does not get to see her dude. So she eventually leaves, and she goes to college and gets a degree in ornamental gardening. And she becomes really obsessed with gardening for a while, but then lets her garden fall into disrepair when she discovers how great TV is. And I'm just like, girl, same. This book, I feel, is sort of personally attacking me, because I see Aunt Baby, and I just see the (laughs) Christmas future.
0: This is all still on the introductory chapter, isn't it? It closes by acknowledging that all of the issues covered in the main narratives, which are set over a few days in Rahal and Esther's childhood. They're rooted in the love laws, which we meant to think is a sort of reference to the kind of ancient categories and taboos of India, like caste and stuff, Mm. so, um, although this does get complicated. So we have this quite long bit, don't we? I'll read it. You're welcome to cut it. To say it all began when Sophie Moll came to IMN is only one way of looking at it. Equally, it could be argued that it actually began thousands of years ago, long before the Marxists came, before the British took Malabar, before the Dutch ascendancy, before Vasco da Gama arrived, before the Zamorans' conquest of Calicut, before the three purple robed Syrian bishops murdered by the Portuguese were found floating in the sea with coiled sea serpents riding on their chests and oysters knotted in their tangled beards. It could be argued that it began long before Christianity arrived in a boat and seeped into Kerala like tea from a tea bag. That it really began in the days when the love laws were made, the laws that lay down who should be loved and how and how much.
1: Uh, Snooze. I came here for creepy twins and hot priests. I'm not. I interested. love all this stuff. No, I'm not interested in a history lesson that's, you know, gonna teach me about another culture and enrich me as a person. That's not why I'm here. No. So now we're thrown into a flashback, and this is actually the bulk of the main narrative. So we go back to the 60s when the twins and Sophie were children. And like all good stories from the 60s, it centers around The Sound of Music. Do I have time to tell that story about my grandpa?
0: That's really up to you.
1: Okay, fine, well, it's gonna be told then. So basically, in the 60s when The Sound of Music came out, my grandpa took God knows how many children he had then. We're French Catholic, many. All of them, I don't know. So he uh, had never somehow, inexplicably, never seen a musical before and had no- Despite
0: having lived in America in the middle of the I, century. It, I
1: know, but he had no concept of what a musical is Mm. so he took his kids and apparently was so furious the entire three hours because people do not just burst into song and dance and he never shut up about it Mm. for the next 60 years
0: Me think the granddad does protest too much the guy loved it he
1: i think this gave him one of his many heart attacks
0: should have brought my harmonica (laughs)
1: Ghost of my grandfather's gonna materialize, slap you, steal your wallet, and then go away.
0: Is that something you did?
1: You probably think you deserved it. Okay. So the family heads out on a road trip to the airport to pick up Margaret and Sophie, who are flying in from the UK, landing in India for the first time after years of estrangement from Uncle Chaco. And Uncle Chaco is a former Rhodes Scholar, and he went to Oxford, and he's obsessed with the Great Gatsby, which he quotes a lot, to sort of the annoyance of people around him. I'm just like, friend, did you learn nothing about Gatsby's mishandling of the phrase old sport, or...
0: They're kind of similar figures, though. I I know, I I think
1: that's really funny. And he runs the family's pickle factory now, despite saying he's a communist. He kind of does it for the street cred, but doesn't really get in... Helping any of the communists in any materialist way, or any real sort of material way.
0: Material or materialist? Uh,
1: Yeah, sorry, I realised that was a bit of a flub and then I accidentally hit the nail. A
0: Marxian slip.
1: Yeah, what is it that Marx says? You miss 100% of the revolutions you don't instigate?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Is that a sort of.
1: It's a Wayne Gretzky quote. Right, okay, yeah. So Uncle Chaco mostly just uses the communist stuff to pick up chicks at work. I don't know if you know this, Daniel, but there are actually only two legal ways men are allowed to pick up women and one is shoving radical politics down their throat and the other is forcing them to listen to you play the guitar. Do you guys want to hear me play Wonderball? <laughs> so then we get a further flashback within a flashback and we find out about Amu's own failed marriage to the twins' father. She mostly married him to get away from her family. And I'm like, this family? But why? Who would want to leave this? But he turns out to be this horrible abusive alcoholic, so she left him. And she sort of turns up back home with these baby twins and her family is like, what the hell are you doing back here? We already turned your bedroom into a home gym. But she has nowhere else to go and so they all just sort of bitterly live with each other and raise these kids as dysfunctionally as possible.
0: Communism is a big deal in Kerala. The family are on their road trip to pick up Margaret and Sophie from the airport and they kind of get waylaid by a big communist rally that is in the outskirts of Cochin. A few of the reds pass the car by and start, teasing Aunt Baby, who's in the front seat, and make her wave the red flag.
1: This whole family is a red flag, but anyway.
0: (laughs) Well, one kind. But yeah, because she's quite sort of they're these like upper-middle-class types, aren't they, and she's quite kind of imperious and snobbish, isn't she? So it really humiliates her. At the same time, amongst the uh, protesters, Rahel and Esther think they see Veluta, who is a carpenter and engineer that works for the family firm, and they're like, oh, there he is, and everyone's like, what? One of our boys among the communists? Don't like that. So Veluta's an all-around nice guy, but he's also a, an untouchable, a Dalit and Aunt Baby, who's already pretty snobbish about cast stuff, is like, alright, oh, I'll keep a mental note of this.
1: But yeah, I mean, this this scene, it's a big old scene. We got some family drama, local drama brewing. We got some national drama brewing. Yeah. You know, I've I got my popcorn I'll sit quite, back and...
0: I can see this being quite good in a film or something. All the oh stuff yeah, at yeah, the same this, time. yeah. This, is,
1: this is the most cinematic, I think, element of this. But you know, I'll, let's sit back and see how this plays out, especially with Aunt Baby involved in this. This is sort of where, um... The rally is like the vanishing point where uh, discrimination merges with dinner theater. Like, how is Mm, she going to react to this? So the family finally makes it to Cochin to pick up Margaret and Sophie at the airport the next day. But, you know, it's a long way. They have to spend the night. And that night, they decide to go see The Sound of Music. And they've already seen it loads of times. And Esther, who's bringing a lot of theater kid energy to this scene, he knows all the songs. He cannot control himself from singing along in the movie theater. (laughs) I feel like this was oh. you as a child. Oh, really? You strike me as the sort of person who talks in a movie. I don't know why, but so everyone gets so annoyed at him for singing along with the music that his mother basically says, if you want to sing, you have to go sit outside in the lobby. Um, I'm trying to avoid talking about this next bit. Uh, what's your favorite part of The Sound of Music?
0: Uh, the bit where the Baroness says I should have brought my harmonica
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to know my favorite? Yes, yeah. It's a two second moment. It's where the Reverend Mother is talking to Maria about how much Maria is in love with Captain Von Trapp. And she says, What is it you can't face? Except she's got an English accent. So it sounds like she says, What is it you can't face?
0: I ruined that. Good. Film. Good. Good. Yeah. Another one down the pan. Thank you. Answer,
1: what else have I ruined for you?
0: Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves.
1: Oh, what? You loved it before? Yeah. We've been fighting about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves for. Four years now?
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not giving you any more time. Okay. You know in your heart, look look within yourself, you know I'm right.
0: Right, yeah. It's
1: charming, it's an adventure romp, get over it.
0: Sure. Keep going.
1: <sighs> I'm sorry, I don't want to talk about this next bit, it's awful, so I'm going rogue and instead I'm going to turn this into a Sound of Music podcast. Welcome to Lonely Goat Herd Hour with Abby and Daniel. Today our topic is Captain Von Trapp's baffling sexual energy when he does that little folk dance. We yeah, have to be yeah. careful though, because we have our other podcast, Plum the Depths. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, about yeah, the great, the works of the great.
1: Yeah, Christopher Plummer. We're both a uh, plumber completist.
0: Plum is the term. We, That's the term for a fan of Christopher Plummer.
1: And so yeah, we we really dig through his back catalog. So we have to be careful not to. Okay, no, I mean i mean the to, Royal
0: Hunt for the Sun, where he plays the Emperor of the Incas. That's a weird, uh, yes. That's Does a he actually weird role for Christopher Plummer? But as a plum bag, I can't say no. <laughs> that
1: sounds funny. Stop calling yourself a plum bag. I was trying to do something with the William Carlos Williams poem, but there's nothing no, there. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. It was too, That was too much. Too yeah, convoluted. Yeah. Okay, right. So I have to tell this next bit.
0: Cole's story played as well, didn't he? So now you I did? don't want to get onto it.
1: Yeah, I know. Okay. <sighs> Can I have seven beers just lined up for this next bit? I hate this. Okay. So I'm going to remind you all of the trigger warnings here, so if anything in the trigger warnings uh, might be upsetting to you, maybe don't listen to this bit. So, okay, Esther is all alone in the concessions area, just singing his heart song, and he strikes up this slightly antagonistic conversation with the concessions dude called the Orange Drink Lemon Drink Man, who eventually gives Esther a free soda. And then we get the following sentence. Quote, now if you'll kindly hold this for me, the Orange Drink Lemon Drink Man said, handing Esther his penis through his soft white muslin dotty, I'll get your drink. And I jumped when I read that because I did not know this was coming. And it's written in such a way that it's it's really startling in the way that like if somebody just whipped their dick out, you would be shocked. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really felt like it's kind of an assault on the reader as well because it's it's just so surprising it does
0: say that right at the beginning of the novel that something happened to him in the cinema so yeah, I, but kinda, I do i did think that something like this was coming but yeah it's still shocking obviously
1: so it's very distressing i'm not going to get into the sort of worst of it and he, he sort of stumbles back into the cinema no longer with a song in his heart and tells his mother he's going to be sick And then after the movie, his mother ends up striking up this conversation with the orange drink, lemon drink man. And he uses the opportunity to make what seems like just sort of polite chit-chat, but actually uses it to give veiled threats to tell Esther he knows where he lives. So basically, Mm. you know, like, oh, your son said you're from here. And he kind of looks knowingly at him, like, if you say anything, Mm. I'm going to find you. And it's really upsetting. Mm. Rahel knows via their sort of twin bond that something is wrong, but I don't think she ever finds out, does she?
0: It never really comes up again... I don't
1: think anybody uh, knows, yeah. yeah. So, um, comedically, this is a bit of a strain. I don't know if you have any gentle riffing about child molestation. Anything from the sort of, uh... Do you you have a type 5 from your comedy stand-up, or...?
0: I mean, it is a topic that people joke about, isn't it? But I'm not willing to do so. Right. Hold this is, this uh. is fun uh.
1: Thanks for choosing this book
0: So the next day they'll go to the airport To pick up Margaret and Sophie And the reunion's a bit awkward isn't it It's described as a play Like they're mm. all kind of putting on airs aren't they And Rahel and Esther don't really play along So there's a lot of stuff here about like How the, the family need to be ambassadors to India They have to speak English And they have to act in a certain kind of genteel way and...
1: Yeah I, all, the phrase that just kept passing through my mind Is is Uncle Chaco Normcore <laughs> There's definitely tension between the family, and it doesn't help that Sophie Maul, who sort of reads as more white, she has red hair and they all find that very glamorous and she's half English and things, she does, she does bring this very intense energy to it, so she sort of swans up to Rahel and Espan and is like, shut up fives, a ten is talking. And
0: Also in this uh, chapter we get a bit about, back in the village, Comrade Pillai, don't we, who's one of the kind of local Communist activists with his son called Lenin. He'll he'll come up again later, won't he? We just get a little nod to him at this section. Hey. So now
1: we get another flashback within the flashback. So we go back a little bit and talk about Esther and Rahel's shitty grandpa, who, first of all, is an embittered entomologist, like those another <laughs> <Yeah>. kind. <laughs> he just wants so badly to name a moth. I'm like, mm, dream big, grandpa. And secondly, he's a wife beater, so that's sort of two strikes against him in my book. I don't know about you, but Chaco finally stops him from beating Mamachi. So she did the only healthy thing and immediately became kind of romantically attached to her son. So she quote, packed her wifely luggage and committed it to Chaco's care. From then onward, he became the repository of all of her womanly feelings, her man, her only love. I am all for the institution of sexual anarchy, but this is just the giddy limit. Get therapy. Yeah. So.
0: You sh- just hypocrite, isn't it? Don't. You are.
1: Just. Oh, uh, this is I, so creepy. I'm
0: all, that's. This is. I don't want to sound like Voltaire or something, Do but it. if you're all for sexual anarchy, this is exactly the point at which you should be I'm commending s- these actions. Okay. Please
1: don't boink your son, or want to, or feel romantic. Feelings. Unless
0: you really want to. Is that not? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, 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 actually. Okay, right for him. Glad glad to agree. So now we flash back forward to the family reunion at the airport They all drive home and when they get back to the the family house Esther and Rahel aren't really feeling all these creepy family dynamics a Norman Rockwell painting this ain't so they sneak off to go play with Valuta who uh, is the untouchable who has kind of grown up alongside Amu and, and Chaco. Like, he's, he's supposed to be really talented as a carpenter, and the family recognized his talents, even though he's an untouchable, so they invested in him. The kids grew up with him as, as sort of this uncle figure, and the elderly family members really don't like the familiarity. They hate that the kids feel so comfortable around him. And Voluta is kind of a, he's kind of a general, like, handyman around the place, and all of a sudden, Emma's like, hmm, I don't know what he fixes, but I think mine's broken.
0: Yeah.
1: And he starts clocking her as a sexual object, and I'm like, yes, girl, forbidden furtive sex is very hot.
0: Back in the present day. 1992.
1: <laughs> Do you have to scream that? Oh my god. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Everybody needs to be alert. Rahel has some kind of fond memories of Voluta and also feels a bit guilty or traumatized about something potentially involving Voluta Hmm, that'll be. Uh, well, <laughs> Don't worry, we'll find it out. Also, she sees that the family pickle concern has long gone bust. So <laughs> Do you have
1: to phrase it as the family pickle concern?
0: <laughs> so, we flash back. It's the 1960s again. Esther, traumatized by his abuse Why? Constantly prepares to retreat to an old house across the river in case his abuser Uh, seeks him out, as was threatened.
1: I know this is gonna sound wild, but I don't have a lot of good zingers for this part of the novel. No.
0: Well, there's a bit here where he makes the banana jam, which is quite a good bit, but... So, Esther's plan is aided when the twins discover an old boat by the river that Voluta fixes up for them. Meanwhile, we have a little bit of Voluta's home life. The twins go and visit his house, his, like, shack that he lives in, and his brother there, Kutapan who's uh, paraplegic, warns the twins to be careful on the river. So, there's a little foreshadowing oh, myth- Yeah, I was
1: gonna say, if only there were a Russian playwright who could lend his name <laughs> to this obvious setup. Okay, so now we get to a chapter called The God of Small Things. And I just, I need to make it known, it needs to be minuted here. I hate this when in a film or a book, they have the title of the film or the book very prominently displayed. I
0: love that. I'm like, that's- um, Oh, It feels so classy to me.
1: Yeah? You're, well, you're a classy guy, Daniel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, it's, uh, did you ever see that show, what is it, Little Fires Everywhere? I'm aware of it. Because I stopped watching it after the first five minutes in which somebody comes out of a burned-down house and said, there were just little fires everywhere. And I went click and turned You're it like off. like uh,
0: David Copperfield. Like, probably His on the name? first page, they oh call him God. David Copperfield. Oh, God, oh, God, uh, I sh- uh, can't believe how tacky that is
1: right so we get I don't have a lot to say about this because we get a chapter from Amu's perspective and she has a sex dream and her kids see her have a sex dream but think it's a nightmare I have nothing more to say here but I think you want to talk about Uncle Chaco eating weird breakfast you're obsessed with food do you get enough to eat
0: um yeah are you sure? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah.
1: Just, do you have a- you have an.
0: There are some Jaffa cakes right here. Yeah,
1: please rustle that right in the uh, microphone. That's why I did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And I'm frying some bacon. Mmm. <laughs> well, we also get that little chapter that kind of retells the Mahabharata, of the uh, Indian epic, don't we? I quite like that bit, but...
1: Look yeah. at the face I'm making yeah, right now. Yeah,
0: well... Clearly this stuff is wasted on some people. Pearls before swine, all that stuff.
1: Wow, Daniel just called me a pig. (laughs) Wow
0: so few indian legends get thrown in for good measure then we go back to chaco and his failed marriage to margaret back in england so when he was at oxford he was this sort of like lovably eccentric type but then <laughs> shortly after which you know she found very charming because she was this kind of had a boring job as a waitress in a cafe the moment he graduated he kind of ballooned didn't he and uh, also kind of couldn't really do anything to help himself and so they split up and that's why he went back to kerala and she went off with somebody else and raised sophie with him But we get this great bit where they first meet and Chaco has this weird breakfast and I've I've cut out all distracting dialogue. I don't care about that sort of thing, as you know. So, he orders, I'm going to go itemise it, I'm going to go through what he did. He orders fried eggs on toast with strawberry jam. He picked the strawberries out of the jam and put them on one side of his plate. The rest of the jam he spread in a thick layer on his buttered toast. Then, he lifts the fried eggs onto the toast broke the brilliant, wobbling yolks and spread them over the strawberry jam with the back of his teaspoon.
1: This is disgusting.
0: Next, the toast with jam and fried egg is cut into little, neat squares, and the de-jammed strawberries are summoned one by one and sliced into delicate pieces.
1: Daniel, please stop. I hate this. Next,
0: he places a sliver of strawberry on each bright yellow and red square of toast, making the whole thing look like a lurid snack that an old woman might serve at a bridge party. Finally, the pièce résistance, he sprinkles salt and pepper on the squares. What's that all about, then? What's going on there? You don't like that.
1: I cannot turn any paler. This is the worst thing you've ever said to me. Right. I forgot about this bit. I think I... Blocked it out. This
0: there's a lot, of, but there's a lot of these little kind of minutiae in the book. Uh,
1: we uh, need uh, a trigger warning for this.
0: <laughs> disgusting this is, breakfast. This
1: is, this is traumatic. I hate that when
0: people are like that, really fussy with their food, like in that sort of what, way. What in like you know, a Poirot, meticulous Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was that. I think it was a well observed, funny bit.
1: I have funny stuff about food. That's disgusting. Weird combinations like that. I'm not a
0: fussy eater, but oh boy. That's... I was thinking, spin off, YouTube series. We eat the meals from some of the books we cover.
1: You can eat this yeah. <laughs> one. I'm going to be outside while yeah. you do it. So And then you're going to edit it because I don't even want to hear you eating
0: Boom, oh, oh, Jesus oh. Christ.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what people want, <laughs> is hearing us eat into a microphone. Well, uh,
0: well it'd be on it'd be YouTube, though, so it will be seen. I do.
1: Mm-hmm. Sick, you're a sick man. Yeah. Get help. It's your, it's your bit now. Right. After that waking nightmare is over.
0: So... The eggs are a thing in the past, of the past.
1: Stop talking about it then!
0: So, this next bit is a bit of an ordeal, isn't it? Narratively speaking, not in terms of content. So yeah, because time is very ambiguous. So we have a kind of scene where Sophie's body is discovered in the river, drowned. And then we kind of cut slightly further back in time, with Esther, Rahel, and Sophie all running away from home after Amu shouts at Esther and Rahel, calling them millstones
1: come now, at most they're just terrible and embarrassing burdens on her, block her at every turn.
0: And weird. The implication is that Sophie got killed during this sortie, and then uh, another time, slightly earlier still, um, Veluta's father goes to the family home to Tell Mamachi that he suspects that Amu and Valuta are having an affair. Valuta's father, who is an untouchable, he really like has internalized it all and hates this oh idea God, of like yeah. the cast's mixing.
1: Well, because I mean, he he even offers to kill his son mm-hmm. to sort of avenge this. So like, he's like, I'll kill my son. It's not enough for you guys just to like shun him. Sorry, it's like it's like a tragic <laughs> Dr. Seuss poem. Mm.
0: And
1: Mamachi's like. No, it's not necessary. No, yeah, but, do, but, do not kill your dirty son, do not <laughs> kill him with a gun!
0: <laughs> they are both um, disgusted though, aren't they, uh, by the whole thing. Valuta gets sacked. Uh, on the day of the children's disappearance, Baby, uh, Aunt Baby goes to the um, police, who obviously love all that caste stuff, or maybe obviously, I don't know, they do anyway, and tells them, reports Valuta for rape, saying that he, he raped, ra- um, raped Amu. And also says that she suspects that he kidnapped the children, and that's why they've gone missing.
1: Aunt baby, could you just stop being yourself
0: for
1: eight (laughs) f***ing minutes? This is classic you.
0: The family lock Amu away. We have a cut to Sophie on the day of her death collecting presents from England. It's all sort of like little big bends and phone boxes and things, isn't it? To give to Esther and Rahel in order to win their friendship, because they kind of exclude her, don't they? So that's quite a touching bit, isn't it? Well, that's, that's, that's the hardest bit in the book, isn't it, I thought.
1: You're, of... you're a hero. Yeah, you're thank a champ. You. Yeah,
0: yeah. The breakfast is such a fitting metaphor for the <laughs> confusing narrative, isn't it? Just all these kind of weird Stop things together. Stop bringing it up! Eggs and jam and... You know. Daniel, I'm going to slap you and steal your wallet. People have eggy bread sweet, though, don't they? So would you do that? Pen-
1: but there's a difference between an egg as an ingredient in a sweet thing.
0: No, I don't think so. doesn't well, matter. Versus... Napoleon used to have steak and ice cream. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for Chaco.
1: Okay, you know what? You're twisted enough to try this. Go home, you make that breakfast, and you report back next time and you tell me what you thought.
0: Sure. On the proviso that it will probably be marmalade, not jam. Right. Back to the book.
1: Now we get a flashback within the flashback and we find out that some of the townsfolk Kind of knew about Emu and Voluta's affair long before the family did. We're not really sure how long this has been going on. Now, flash to the sort of present in the narrative in the 60s where Voluta's just gotten the sack, the family found out about his affair, and he goes to Comrade Pillai's house to try to get help for being in this situation, but Pillai won't help him. So Voluto goes off for a sad swim in the river, which is what I do when I'm feeling down.
0: Just after seeing somebody eat some weird breakfast, you're just you're immediately diving I, into the river. My hand to God. In the river Ray.
1: Come here, it's gonna, it's gonna <laughs> look like I'm trying to strangle you, but actually it's just a hug, I swear.
0: Now we have a sort of kind of consistent coverage of the children's abscondment after Amu out, made the outburst. So, they intend to hide out in this abandoned house across the river. They'll only come back if Amu begs them to come back.
1: That's an awful lot of pride for nine-year-olds to have. I don't
0: know, you never had that, like, when you, like, tie the little, uh... A
1: bindle! Bindle and I go was... like, I'm running away from home! Did you ever do that? I have that here to ask if you ever tried to run away, because I used to make a little bindle.
0: I'd make, a, I'd do that, I'd make the gesture. I wouldn't actually leave the house and accidentally kill my cousin. While they're crossing the river with Sophie, the boat hits a log, and Sophie falls in and drowns. Then we return to the present day, the 1990s, again. Baby's still holding a torch to Father Mulligan, the uh, priest, despite the fact that he transpires he's, he's become a Hindu.
1: I mean, what do you mean, despite the fact that he's become a Hindu? This is her This is her time, man. No, because
0: she's a Syrian Christian, so she's, she's not.
1: Yeah, but he's now free! Of the shackles of popery, oh. it's time to get weird with it. And they talk about how Aunt Baby got really into watching wrestling. Think of the bizarre sex they could have. Come on, man. What? This is her time. Having
0: sex while watching the wrestling.
1: No, I just meant like leaping on each other oh, wearing right. masks yeah. or something. I don't really know.
0: Then we have another flashback. Um, oh my
1: god, I can't handle it anymore.
0: Esther's departure up to Calcutta after all the hoo ha. He's forced to go and live with his father in the wake of the scandal, the scandal involving Sophie Moll's death. And so we have this kind of tragic departure scene.
1: Okay, so now we, we jump to when they discover Sophie's body and the police start hunting for Voluta in the wake of Aunt Baby's accusation. He ends up fleeing through the jungle and he sort of coincidentally ends up at the ruined house where Rahel and Esther are hiding. And they... got there's just... It's tragedy on top of tragedy. They... These poor kids witness the police beat Voluta nearly to death. Jesus Christ, cut to commercial. Is there some sort of like union rule where we have to take a break from-
0: This is a horrible this bit. Is, this it? is awful. Another of the many horrible bits.
1: And so the the police see the toys there, they find the kids, they're like, wait, something more complicated is happening. Voluta probably isn't guilty, but we're not really sure what's going on. Oh well, he's a he's an untouchable, having sex with a higher caste woman. And they just round up everyone and take them to the station. Voluta being seriously hurt.
0: We're at the PlayStation. Aunt Baby is called in and told that she'll get arrested for having falsely accused Voluta of rape and kidnapping unless she can convince the twins to testify against Voluta and say that he did kidnap them.
1: I would love if this was actually just the preamble to the real story, which is Aunt Baby going to jail. Like one of those <laughs> Medea movies of like Medea goes to jail, but it's Aunt Baby. It just like she would rule that prison.
0: So, Baby. Aunt Baby, that is, takes the children to one side. She's like,
1: Can, can I talk to you over here for
0: just a minute? Yeah. Just, just a minute. And she's like, pretty nasty, isn't she? As per, and she says, The kids are all like, tell them what happened. They said, Oh, we hit a log and the, Sophie fell in and drowned. She's like, No, you know what you did. You know you killed Sophie deliberately. You know you're always jealous of her. And it's like, If this comes out, not only will you go to jail, but so too will your mother. Do you want that on your conscience? You've already killed some kid, you're also gonna get your mother jailed. She the kind of conclusion is that their only solution is to indict Voluta, who's about to die anyway, of all the charges.
1: What's he gonna die of? Is it natural causes? Yeah,
0: well, they throw him in a pit, <laughs> don't they, which is pretty horrible. This, is, uh,
1: this book is so depressing.
0: And then everyone would like the idea is everyone would just put it behind them and they they go ahead and do that. So then we find ourselves back at the incident that was at the beginning of the book, don't we? Um following Sophie Mole's funeral, Amu visits the police station and tries to exonerate Voluta, but the police chief is like, I don't really give a shit what you think because you've been copulating with an unclean one. And, and Aunt baby hears that Amu has tried to reveal the truth to the police. Baby is like, we've got to get this whole family. They're like, we've got to cut, cut ties with this family. Rahel can stay here, but we've got to get rid of Amu. We've got to get rid of Esther. That's when Esther gets sent up to Calcutta. We don't really know what happens to Amu, do we? I don't, no. Not good, though. I think the implication is. So, yeah, that's the big... That's the big central incident of the plot.
1: I just, uh, yeah, I love that this ends with Aunt Baby being like, I banish thee. Yeah. It's just, this This is like a soap opera that's given up on itself. It either needs to be ten times more camp or two times less tragic. Mm. Right, so now we end, right? And, uh, and surely all the drama and weirdness is <laughs> <are> behind <laughs> us. Yeah. Right, so we're back in the present day, which is the, in the 90s, and the twins are... In their early 30s, reunited after all this time, everything, unsurprisingly, is still melancholy and decayed. I'm not really sure if you guys were thinking this was going to take a sharp left turn into feel-goodery, but it doesn't. I just think that Roy is probably like, I know this is a rough journey I put you all through, but at the very least, this is going to make for a super weird podcast episode in 25 years, so it's not all a total waste.
0: definitely was thinking that, yeah.
1: So... Esther and Rahel, who haven't seen each other since they were children, reunite and have sex. And I know this is all part of the uh, continuing bigger message about the family's tradition of breaking all these love laws, but I really did not think we we're going to be going into Game of Thrones territory in the 11th hour. Twincest is then interspersed with flashbacks of Ammu and Voluta's sex life, and then the book ends leaving us neck deep in a Freudian quagmire, and the moral is that the human heart wants what it wants, no one understands it, it's garbage. The end. First of all, I'd like to say there were no himbos or queer readings in this.
0: Um, Do you feel ripped off? Is Faluta not a bit of a himbo? Uh, Not really.
1: Casting? Shall we cast this? With an E at the Uh, end. uh, (laughs) uh, uh, uh. Okay, so I think that this is melodramatic enough to be some sort of, like, lifetime mini-series event. It's the sort of thing when I was 14 I would have recorded on a blank VHS and then watched on sick days. So, I'm sure there's a whole, like, Bollywood world out there that I'm not familiar with. I'm sure there are many other casting choices. I'm going to stick to sort of British or American actors of Indian descent. So, I want Indira Verma as Amu because she's beautiful and terrifying. I want, this is my favorite bit, I want Mindy Calling in really really bad old age makeup as Aunt Baby.
0: Oh yeah, I could see that. I yeah, see that. that's yeah. quite funny.
1: And then maybe Cal Penn as Uncle Chaco to lighten it up a little bit.
0: No, no room for, I think we're gonna have to tear up your plum bag membership because no room for Christopher Plummer. He he browned up for um Hunt for the
1: well, is it, Royal
0: Hunt for the Sun. He can do it again.
1: <laughs> obviously young Christopher Plummer is gonna have to be the hot priest.
0: Oh, uh, or that.
1: So this is a very fragmented story. I mean, are these all the sort of small things? Is Arundhati Roy the god of all of these things, shaping this world to paint a much it's like a mosaic, isn't yes, it? Things adding up.
0: What's Valuta is described as the god of small things as well, isn't he? So I wonder if it might also be a sort of social
1: thing, mm. like,
0: because he's like a sort of...
1: Socially considered small. Yeah. And yeah,
0: but then he's also this sort of great soul, a kind of godly figure.
1: Well, I was thinking about just, um, the idea of small things, and spaces keep getting removed in this. So I, I know that there's a whole bit about removing boundaries between things and that a single unit can contain many small parts, but, um on a sort of formal level, they keep taking spaces between words and running them all together Mm. so like they say, his lemon to lemon, too cold, too sweet but lemon to lemon is all one word Mm. or fine thank you, written as all one word Um,
0: That's also because it's like sort of in a children's idiom isn't it kind mm. of and so you get this sense that like these are stock phrases that they've not properly learned as yes. but yeah you're right that there is this sense of playing with boundaries and spaces and yeah
1: time as well because it it bounces back and forth so much but that that's sort of the nature of memory isn't it where you think at you know we're we're in our early 30s much like them thinking back to when you're how old are they supposed to be, what, eight or Seven. nine, something like that. Yeah, and and so you have this one memory and then this is sparks something else and it mm-hmm. you jump around a yeah, lot and kind it's of a synaptic. Sort of, well it's it's these sort of like freewheeling associations mm. you almost have. Yeah,
0: because that's the modernistic thing, isn't it? There's that sense of a stream of consciousness almost, but not in the way that we would necessarily recognise it. Mm. Stream of memories, I suppose.
1: Why the sound of music I mean is is it just the fact that this is about somebody who really cares for children who have been sort of abandoned, and it happens, you know, in this this horrible time when this one child is being isolated and abused. Mm. Is it is it just is it that?
0: I suppose it's kind of, there are kind of parallels between the two works, aren't there? This kind of large, slightly dysfunctional, slightly too very dysfunctional families in. A moment of political turmoil. But in,
1: there, it's about a family that heals and escapes as a cohesive unit, and, you
0: contrast it, and yeah. this yet
1: yeah, completely Fence fragments, apart. and everyone goes their same way.
0: Yeah, it was, that's funny because you were saying that thing before about how you don't know any Bollywood actors, and it's funny that this fun would uh, this book wouldn't mention it would go out of its way to mention a Western musical. Yes, because they talk about that, don't they, about being Anglophiles? And obviously, Chaco actually lived in England, and uh, Rahel goes to America, and
1: as does Aunt Baby. She goes to Rochester.
0: Oh, what, when she wants to be a nun? Or?
1: No, when she gets her degree in ornamental art. Oh, right, gardening. yeah, of course, yeah. They talk about their, how, yeah, yeah, they're Anglophiles. Well, they talk about how yeah. that
0: they, they can't retrace their footprints back to their kind of historical roots because they've got too much, you know, too hung up on these kind of Western manners or something. There's a little bit of that. Well, so.
1: and it's it's a boundary blurring between their own sort of culture and then this sort of boot of imperialism that they have deeply internalized mm. because it somewhat benefits them and it's the sort of like almost abuse is so part of our experience and it's just, you know, it's yeah. so it's, yeah. yeah. Right, so let's end on some advice um, because this book, as, as we've made, I hope, clear, bounces back and forth a lot. Occasionally I was a little confused. Sometimes if books have a really confusing structure or bounce back and forth between time or location or perspective, They might be doing that deliberately. It's okay to feel confused sometimes. Sometimes that's what an author wants you to feel. So I think the advice I have is don't actually fight it or even necessarily try to follow it. Sometimes it's okay just to let it kind of wash over Mm, you and and just experience it until things become clearer. So what's the clue to the next episode? Do you have a clue?
0: Picture Dalton Trumbo but in a really big hat. That's my clue big broad-brimmed hat. What? <laughs> I keep getting told that my clues are too easy, so I thought I'd really... Uh, be look, this is like a sort of cryptic crossword-style uh, clue.
1: How about we just all acknowledge that Daniel is terrible at giving clues? Well, my clue is that in the next text, somebody shares my first name and is a sexual monster and I love her. we should all worship at her feet.
0: Well, there you go. Mm. So
1: please write into our email if you guys have any suggestions, any questions. Uh, We asked you a few questions this episode. Uh, I will read them out next time. And please subscribe wherever you listen, especially iTunes or Spotify. It really, really helps us. And it takes probably like two seconds of your time just to
0: click the subscribe button. Unless you want to hinder us, then don't.
1: Yeah, but if you... Well, if you want to make enemies out of us, subscribe. And then... Start up a conflict and tell everyone you know to listen and hate us, and just really dogpile and get us really popular, so more people listen and hate us. That's a great way to run us into the ground. No, you
0: gotta smother the infant in its cradle. That's what people need to do.
1: <laughs> do we have a better? Do we have a better sign off? What than that? i <laughs> oh, we're just gonna go with okay. We love you. Bye. But no, you're right. That's uh, a. Yeah.
0: Tada! You sh-ters. What is happening? Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.